welcome my Force-sensitive friends to the 50th ever full episode of Holy Star Wars. This week we're going to a second round of Chuck Wendig's Aftermath novel. Along with this piece of Star Wars, we're going to be jumping into the creation story of the Yoruba people. Our theme this week, preparation. We all want to do the most we can to prepare for things in advance. And if we're not, well, <laughs> we should. This isn't to say that everything can be prepped for, of, of course not. The unexpected is always possible, and that's something we've talked about before in episodes 44 and 40 on anticipation and planning, respectively. But when I think about preparation, I think specifically about the gathering together of components that are necessary for success. That is a component, potentially, of anticipation and planning, but I think planning is more broad while preparation is more meticulous and specific. Maybe I'm just splitting hairs, I probably am, and you're more than entitled to feel differently about the meaning of these words. In fact, please do. But I do find it worthwhile and helpful to get into the potential slight differences between words, not only to sharpen our understanding of language and its impact, which God knows is extraordinarily important right now these days, but to get into different kinds of conversations than we would by just assuming everything meant the same thing as each other. In Aftermath, we see a good bit of planning. We see the Imperial Future Council talking about all sorts of ideas for how to move forward without the Emperor. They do lots of anticipating, too, saying all sorts of claims about what's the best plan and what will happen if they choose one over the other. All the while, I don't see any preparation going on. There's lots of ideas, but no specifics on how to execute them. It suggested at one point that the full Imperial fleet should be brought out to meet the Rebel Armada. Nobody suggests how they'll do that successfully. How many ships are in the Rebel fleet? How certain are they that the full Imperial fleet is going to crush the Rebellion? There's no facts or figures given to prove this tactic will work. Similar things are going on with the Imperial higher-ups as they vie for power. A lot of them have come to this meeting... Partially unsure what's happening, but fully in belief they each were the most qualified, especially Grand Moff Volko Pandian. He does have ample experience in blah blah blah, but he comes to that meeting with no preparation. Yes, you can argue his experience was his prep work, but let's be real. We all know that's not how meetings work. You have to come prepared for that specific meeting. Admiral Sloan, however, comes prepared. She does... Uh, she, she goes into that meeting with a captured Wedge Antilles. She has taken all the resources at her disposal and actually done something with them in order to have a full advantage in the situation and an upper hand over Pandian. An example of when she doesn't do the same comes later, though, when she kills him and ensures her leadership and plans are secured. She wasn't really planning on this in particular. It was just a perfect happenstance, really, more than anything, that she was in this position and had the opportunity to take advantage of it. I bring up this example just to give a stark difference and show that of course preparation is important, but it's not quite the end-all be-all. Yes, now this could be seen in the future as, you know, potentially having prepared herself to, you know, ascend to the leadership of the First Order, and, you know, we know that's what happens, you know, spoiler alert, but it, 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 it's not preparation. This wasn't, this wasn't a preconceived plan. She wasn't planning on killing him from the start, it wasn't, it wasn't premeditated. There was no preparation here. Just luck. And, you know, sometimes luck is a factor. The myth I want to get into this week is from the Yoruba. Please correct me if I pronounce anything wrong today. 
I spent a lot of time trying to get the pronunciations of things correct. I would go on all different websites, reading things, looking at where the accent marks are, trying to get phonetics, listening to videos. Some videos would pronounce things one way, and then someone in the comments would say that's wrong, but not pronounce it any differently. Some people would say in the other places that it was pronounced this way, and still not, and then still get comments that it was pronounced wrong. So. Please, if you know better than me, I would love to be corrected. I really want to know how to pronounce these names properly, but bear with me otherwise. The Yoruba is one of the oldest ethnic groups in the world, hailing from Nigeria, Benin, and Togo primarily. This people numbers in the 40 millions worldwide today and is one of the greatest influences on world religion. So many Judeo-Christian... <laughs> I detest that phrase, by the way. I think it's presumptive and makes it sound like Jews and Christians and all Jews and all Christians share the exact same value system, which they do not, of course, and politicians abuse it. But anyway, so so much of those religions is influenced by Yoruba religion and mythology. As slaves were captured and brought to the southern United States, the Caribbean, and South America, particularly in Brazil, the Yoruba religion had enormous influence on the development of both Christianity and religion as a whole in these regions, ranging from what we call in English voodoo to Santeria to Lucimi, Lucimi, Lucimi in, in Cuba. The myths and gods and beliefs are strong in those cultures and communities, just as they are in Nigeria and across Africa. There's so much more to learn about the Yoruba just than just this one myth today, so most definitely check out our website, holystarwars.net, and our new section all about the peoples and cultures whose stories we share on the show. We've been striving to take a deeper commitment to sharing diverse voices, and this is just one way of that, we're, that we're working on that, by sharing information about and from the communities where the stories we share come from, and elevating their voices and their beings. The Yoruba creation myth may possibly sound familiar. It has a lot of elements familiar from so many other stories that came before and that were influenced by it after. Though it's hard to pin down when and where the religion began and who influenced it first. What matters is that first to understand the what matters for this story at least is to understand the aspects of the religion pertinent to it. There's one primary god, Olurun. And Olurun has three embodiments. Olurun is the essentially primary form embodying and ruling the heavens and is literally a contraction of the words Olo meaning god and Orun meaning heavens. Central to the creation story is the embodiment of god Olodumare. Again, I really want to be pronouncing this correct. I listened to this one video uh, song that was about Olumare over and over again, trying to listen to how they pronounce the name, and I think I have it, but again, please, if you know better, correct me. But Olumare is the creator and the embodiment of creation, as opposed to Olorun, which is the um, embodiment of the heavens and the the almost more corporeal form that's discussed. And then, of, and then also there's the third form, Olufi, the conduit between God and Earth. That's the god god. Then there's the Orisha, the gods that make up the full Yoruba pantheon. The Orisha, central to this creation myth, is Obatala. He had a vision for creating dry land on the sea below the sky where the Orisha lived and populating it with living things. So he went to Olurun and asked for permission to do so and was sent off to Olurun's oldest son and the Orisha of Wisdom, Orimila, to ask for help. Oromila told Obatala that in order to do this, he would need to gather a gold chain, a snail shell full of sand, a black cat, a palm nut, and a hen. 
So Obatala gathered those things, used the chain to descend to the earth, the snail shell to create the land, the hen to peck and harden it onto, into mountains and valleys, and the nut to plant trees that grew instantly. Lastly, he built a home, and he and the cat lived there. After some time, Obatala got bored, though, and crafted some creatures from clay. He asked Olorun, were really more, I guess, it's complicated, because Olorun is the embodiment of God, right? But Oludumare is the the creator of life. So uh, the embodiment of Oludumare, uh, of God in Oludumare is what breathes life into these clay figures. But this first batch was made in a drunken state and were deformed and misshapen. So Obatala swore to never drink again and to protect those that were deformed. And then he tried a second time, and on that attempt, sober, humans were created. The last bit of the creation story ends with Olokan, the god of the waters that was once what all of the earth was made from. All of earth was just water. Similar to many, many other stories. You know, think about um, from episode 9, the Iroquois creation myth. The whole world was just water, and then Sky Mother came from the sky and brought, had, had animals help to create dry land. It's, it's incredible, because these are people from entirely different parts of the world, and they have such an incredibly similar story. I love this stuff. It's so cool. Anyway, she was never consulted and did not approve of this. She didn't want land being created on her waters. Why would she? It's her waters. It's what she is. It's her dominion. So she flooded the earth and destroyed everything. Few survived by climbing to the highest ground, and those that did begged Ishu, the god of the sky, to return to the heavens and send help. After demanding sacrifice, he did so, and Urunmila was sent to earth to dispel the waves in the flood using some magic powers, basically. Thus, the flood ended and the creation story concluded. And on the highest hill, I forgot this part, the city of Ife was established. And this was to be the capital of um, Yoruba Nation and Yoruba Land for pretty much the rest of history. Um, until, you know, definitely look at the history of this, of, of this nation because it's, it's extremely interesting, super complicated. Uh, not super complicated, but there's a lot of interesting stuff. The Yoruba is 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 one ethnic group, but it's made up of several people uh, and tribes within it. And over the course of history, there is there is plenty of vying for power. Although eventually, the the Oyo Nation was the one that that won out for the longest time. And um, anyway, I'll put some information up on the website, and you can definitely do your own research. But I really like this story. There's a few really good examples in here, I think, of preparation in this great story. For one, the obvious is Obatala's preparation for creating land on Earth. Olokan doesn't just say what to do, he bids Obatala gather together several important things and give specific instruction on how to use them. There isn't just a plan vaguely and broadly provided, there's a specific, there's specific prep work that goes into enacting the plan. And it goes off without a hitch, except for one hitch. In the process of planning the Earth, one essential component was not gathered. The opinion of Olokan. Nobody consulted her in spite of the ocean being such an essential part of the whole plan. Nobody prepared her for the changes that were coming to her dominion, and that's just unacceptable, honestly. When making plans of any kind, if we aren't preparing everyone involved, then we, have, then we absolutely should expect potential poor results. And the fact she flooded the world in retribution is a bit extreme, but it only happened because nobody prepared her for the changes that were going to come. When I look at these two stories together, I see two barriers to successful execution of plans that both have to do with preparations. Poor communications and selfish goals. 
The reason the rebels have so much more success is because they communicate and prepare. They don't have egos that make them think they're more important than they are. Akbar, for an example in this book, knows to send support to Akiva because they prepared in advance a contingency for in case they lost contact with Wedge. The Emperor had no communications with his subordinates about a secession plan, and this was because he believed he would be the only one that would ever lead the Empire and that ever should, and that it, sh and, and that it should burn without him. The only preparing he does, as we saw in episode 32 of Holy Star Wars, uh, uh, was in Shattered Empire, the comic miniseries, and Operation Cinder. And that was to prepare for absolute chaos in his stead. The reasons for why Olokan becomes so enraged and floods the Earth are because of the same things. There's no communication with her about what's going to happen, and there's a bit of a selfishness of, you know, Obatala just decides all of a sudden he wants to create life on Earth. Nobody, nobody told him he should. Nobody said, you, Obatala, must do this. It's your destiny. He just decided one day, at least as far as I can tell in the story. And, you know, that's... He may not have been super, you know, braggy about it or anything, but certainly lacking in humility there a little bit. And, and that is what ultimately causes Olokan to have such, such problems with this. Obatala also doesn't prepare for the creations he makes at first. He drunkenly misshapes the figures. What I appreciate, though, about this so, so much is that in this story, he doesn't just go and destroy them or abandon them after he vows to protect them and the deformed forever thereafter. This is really this is not what you expect from most stories. This isn't really the norm. Even today, we don't respect uh, the disabled in the way that we should. They're disabled people. Sorry. People who are disabled. People first language is essential, and I really try really hard to make sure that you know whenever you're talking about about people, you're talking about people who are disabled, not disabled people. Because to call them disabled people is saying that they are defined by their disability. Whereas if you're talking about people who are disabled, then they're defined by their peoplehood first. And the property of their peoplehood is that they have disabilities. Same thing with anything, you know, people who are gay, people who are Jewish, people who are uptight about things. I don't know, <laughs> literally anything. You want to use people first language. So it really actually, it really impresses me that this story ends with Obatala protecting the deformed uh, and his, his original creations and not just abandoning them for his, for his more perfect ones that he makes later, quote unquote perfect, because yeah, humans are perfect, whatever. He doesn't let a lack of preparation evolve into chaos like the emperor does. He makes it into something positive and learns from it, promising to never drink again and again to protect them. Sloane and the rest couldn't have expected the Emperor to die, so preparing for that isn't really a fair expectation, but owning the fact that they were unprepared is essential. Communicating and not squabbling for power is the only way they're going to not only prepare themselves to move forward, but also prepare themselves for not making the same mistakes again. I don't know how this all plays out, I haven't finished the trilogy yet, but man, if I were them, I'd be feeling pretty darn dismal right about now, and I would be doing everything I possibly can to prepare for the future, to learn from the Emperor's mistakes and selfishness and lack of communication, and to ensure that we're gathering material, gathering the resources, including everyone in the conversation, and preparing our plans, and not just anticipating things, not just expecting that they succeed, but putting into action the ways that we're going to do that. I apply this to my own life. Every, we all can apply this to our own lives. When I think about, you know, I, I have been working very, very hard and for, for a while on improving myself in several ways that I 
not going to go into the details of, but it's the same thing. I make these plans. I have these plans and this anticipation in my head, but the preparation involved is what's the most important. If I'm not preparing myself, if I'm not meticulously taking notes and making lists and choosing activities that will better my situations, then I'm not going to get better. My plans will never be enacted because there was no preparation first. And I think this goes for all of us. I think that if we want to be able to, to enact our plans, we have to do some preparation. If I want to make a successful podcast and a good episode, I have to prepare in advance. I can't just wing it. That's why I write out scripts. That's why sometimes they're late on my delivery, like I am today. But of course, that's just my opinions, and I would love to hear yours. Really, I would love to hear yours. Send us an email at holystarwars at gmail.com or tweet us at holy underscore star underscore wars. In the next couple of days, we'll also be adding a page to our website all about the Yoruba religion, history, and culture to help elevate their voices and visibility. So be sure, go on to iTunes or go on to wherever you, you listen. Give us a rating. Give us a review. I would love to see some more of those in the near future. Make sure you're checking out the website, past episodes. Last week, we highlighted the Gullah Geechee Nation, whose story we talked about with the Boo Hag last week. It's some great stuff up there. And if you are out there and are interested in helping to work on these pages for past or future episodes, definitely let us know. I'd love to have some people to work with on these pages so there's some more diverse voices and research going into it. I promised originally that there would be three episodes on Aftermath, but to be honest, I feel like I've exhausted this book for myself already. It's good. I really enjoy it, and I'm actually definitely looking forward to trying to see if I can read some of them. Not Empire's End. Uh, what's the second one? Um, Life Debt Before Solo comes out. Probably not going to you. I'm reading. Uh, I'm reading a New Dawn right now. I my my Barnes and Noble happened to have a really large Star Wars section recently, so um, I had a gift card. Picked this one up. Uh, they didn't have Bloodline. That's the one I wanted to read next. But anyway. Um, we're going to go on from, on next week from, from Aftermath, and we're going to get back in the Clone Wars for a bit, make some progress on season one. Um, <laughs> with, with no more Rebels, I've just been missing the cartoons, and I definitely want to go back into some more, some more Clone Wars. I want to get further into the show, too. I, I love the show and every part of it, even though a lot of people are like, oh, the earlier seasons are so lame. I'm like, no, they're, everything about this show has its, has its virtues, um, if you just look for them, and if you can just appreciate it instead of being salty. But, you know, that's my opinion, and you can have yours too, like everything. But no word yet on a myth or theme, and sorry for all the rambling, but we'll let you know when I know. Thanks for listening. <laughs>